This teaching comes to you from the team at St. Mark's, Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. Good morning, everyone. The Old Testament readings come from the book of Deuteronomy, verse, chapter 5, verse 18, and the book of Samuel, chapter 11, verses 1 to 17. Neither shall you commit adultery. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel with him. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking about on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent someone to inquire about the woman. It was reported, this is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers to get her and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she was purifying herself after her period. Then she returned to her house. The woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab and the people fared and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, you have just come from a journey. Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah remain in booths and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day. On the next day, David invited him to eat and drink in his presence and made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him so that he may be struck down and die. As Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant warriors. The men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite was killed as well. Hear the word of the Lord. The next Bible reading is from Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 to 30. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. 
It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. Welcome. It's good to see you all. I just, uh, I think, I feel like uh, I need to say from the outset that uh, if you're visiting here or if you're first time back from a time away, uh, we're going through a series on the Ten Commandments. I didn't select this uh, just on your account, in case anyone uh, thinks that's the case. Uh, But let's pray and ask for God's help as we seek to understand Him and His Word. Give us grace, O Lord, not only to hear your word with our ears, but also to receive it into our hearts and to show it forth in our lives for the glory of your great name. Amen. Well, is the seventh commandment old-fashioned? Is it relevant to us today? Back in 1631, Robert Baker and Martin Lucas were the royal printers in London. And they had an exclusive contract to print the authorised version of the Bible, the Bible that we know as the King James Version, first published in 1611. However, it was not long after a batch, the the full publication had occurred and they were distributed and read, uh, that 1631 edition, that a glaring error was discovered. In the middle of the Ten Commandments, a very important word has been missed. It was the word not. The seventh commandment now reads, thou shalt commit adultery. Now, was it a mistake or was it sabotage by some cheeky compositor working for Baker and Lucas and seeking to undermine them? I kind of imagine that it was. Whatever the case, Baker and Lucas were fined 300 pounds and deprived of their license. All copies of what became known as the Wicked Bible that could be found were pulped, although a few remain to this day, and if you've got a spare $99,000 or so, 99,000, yes, that's right, dollars or so, you could purchase one of the six or seven that remain. Now, of all the commandments to mess with, it had to be this one, didn't it? We're understandably sensitive about our sexual selves. Sex is so much about who we feel we are. Although most people still think that cheating in a marriage is a bad thing, even those who cheat think that it is, we also don't like the thought of restrictions in this part to this part of our humanity. It would be far less amusing to us if it had let, left the not out of the command to murder, for example. Now, some people would say that the problem here is with marriage itself. Is the idea of a lifelong sexual faithfulness out of date, simply undoable and unworkable? After all, marriage is safe, but not always sexy. One well-known marriage counsellor, relationships counsellor, Esther Perel, uh, named her best-selling book uh, about marriage, Mating in Captivity, which I thought was an interesting title, says what people sometimes suspect is the case about marriage. Perhaps we shouldn't make these promises in the first place. Or perhaps we should come to some more open or polyamorous arrangement which recognises our tendency to stray. Even looking back just a century, we can see how much things have changed. 
contraception and abortion, now both freely available, have meant that the fear that extramarital affairs might produce a child has been greatly reduced. We've conceptually separated sex from childbearing. Increased life expectancy for both sexes means that lifelong now means you could last with that one person for 70 years or more. And that's a long time to be with one person. Some have argued that the burden of, of the adultery command falls disproportionately on women, for whom the evidence of an affair is, somehow, is sometimes harder to conceal. We see this in the famous novel The Scarlet Letter, where the pregnant adulteress Hester Prynne is forced to wear a red A on her clothing, while her male lover, the Reverend Arthur Dimsdale, escapes detection. So is the idea of marriage a social convention that we should revise or update or dismantle? In which case, does the command to not commit adultery have any relevance to us today? Well, the Bible, in fact, teaches that marriage is not a social convention, not an invention of human societies, but is written into the creation of humankind from the very beginning of humankind. In Genesis chapter 1, Humankind is made male and female, both in the image of God and commanded by him to fill the world, to fill and to till, to name and to claim the, the, the earth. In Genesis chapter 2, we're then told that moving story of Adam, the man on his own, whose aloneness, God says himself, is not good. It is not good for the man to be alone. For him, a suitable companion has to be made. And she is made from his own body to be a collaborator and co-agent with him in his task to name and claim and to fill and to till the world that God has made and given to him. This is Eve, whose name means living. And when Adam sees her, he is overcome by recognition. When he sees her, he sees something of himself reflected and yet not the same. And he says to her, those memorable words, this is now at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. They are mutually dependent on each other for life and for living. Just as man is born of woman, so woman is born for, emerges from man. And at this point in the story, the author points us out of the story into the, into the present day, points us to the institution of marriage. And he says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Now this story, this short story, tells us profound and beautiful things about marriage. These are summarised in the preface that we use at every wedding that we do here at St Mark's. Firstly, it tells us that marriage is a gift from God to humankind. That is, marriage is not, in the Bible's terms, a convenient social institution, but something given by God to all human beings. It is God who ties husband and wife together, not the departments of um, births, deaths and marriages. It is God who unites them. It is something that he does. Secondly, Marriage is for three purposes. It's for companionship, for the expression of sexual instincts, and for starting a new family. Those are the purposes of marriage. 
The man and the woman form a new social, sexual and spiritual unity in which and by which and through which a new family is formed. Whenever we do our pre-marriage course, I, I, I emphasise that you, you, you're, not, you're not bringing your wife home to live with your mum, blokes, or the other way around. That's not how it works. You're setting... It's interesting. He's to leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. Well, the old, the old version used to say cleave to his wife. Uh, that is, they're starting a new unit there's a new unity, not just an add-on to the old unity. It's the bringing of these two, these two uh, families together to make a, another one. They become one flesh in that sense. Their two stories and their two bodies unite. They live together. They are in every sense naked to one another. And the promises of marriage are designed to protect them and the children that they care for in this personal and physical vulnerability. As Genesis chapter 2 says in that beautiful last verse, Adam and Eve, the man and the woman, were naked and they knew no shame. They were naked with one another, both physically but also personally. And that is why we use words in our marriage service like honour, respect, protect and cherish. We don't just use the word love. We refract the word love through these words. Just as we experience the joys of one another, so we take on each other's burdens. And it's why sex matters. It's not simply a bodily function. It's not simply an animal or earthly act in that sense. For human beings, it is the union of two embodied souls. Marriage is not simply for or about sex, it's merely an outlet to contain our urges. That's the wrong way round. Rather, sex expresses and seals the unity of marriage. We unite our body to our partners. We do not unite it to someone else. And in that sense, we are one flesh and as such then a unity, of a soulish sort of unity. And we see that, of course, reflected in the children that marriage produces in the miracle of the birth of the child that looks like, you know, when you see your child and you see, oh my goodness, that's my wife's brother's smile on the face of my own child, or that's the irritating habits of my own uncle right there. Not the uncle that some of you know. Third, the fictional uncle. Third, so that's the purposes of marriage. Thirdly, Marriage is to be marked by lifelong faithfulness between the partners. It is a lifelong union, so uniting a woman in and a man in body, mind and spirit, says our marriage preface. It's an exclusive covenant. It can't be a true unity of body and spirit if it doesn't have that exclusivity, which is why the promises of the marriage ceremony say, as long as we both shall live... And our faithfulness to our partners is to be a sign of God's faithfulness to his people. So the command to not commit adultery urges us to protect our marriages and to persevere in them and to respect the marriages of others. We don't have sex with those to whom we are not married and we don't have sex with those who are married to other people. We respect the sanctity of marriage. This is a good word to use, the sanctity of marriage. Stable family and social life is built on this expectation. 
And we'll do whatever we can to make our marriages thrive and to honour the marriages of others. Which means that uh, if you're not a married person, we, it, you have a role in supporting those who do. I'll say more about singleness just now too, because I want to address those who are not married and then to say some more words about adultery, the breaking of the marriage vow in that particular way. And what I want to say about singleness, it really needs to be said because our culture and the church with it have made an idol out of marriage. For many of us, we can't imagine not being married. Uh, or we imagine, we, we feel that those who are not married are somehow not really fully living, not fully a man or a woman, not fully enjoying all that there is to enjoy in life. We need to hear what the New Testament says about singleness. The Bible honors singleness as much or even more than marriage. Single people are called to faithfulness just as married people are called to faithfulness. It is perfectly uh, possible, in fact, more possible, says Paul, to be godly as a disciple of Jesus Christ in your singleness as it is in your marriedness. We shouldn't fall for the trap of thinking that marriage is what everyone should do to be a real Christian. It is not good to be alone, but there are many ways to find companionship other than marriage. You may, as a Christian, validly say that marriage is not for me, whether right now at this phase of life or ever. Contemporary lifestyles being what they are, most adults will probably experience some years of singleness. What both single and married Christians are called to do is to pursue faithfulness and purity in our sexual selves, with our bodies, whatever our state of life. But let me now talk about the sting of adultery. Be under no illusions. Adultery is a deeply destructive sin. Even undiscovered, it's a wrecking ball. It's not just a sin against your body, though it is that. It is a sin that strikes against the very person of your partner, your children, your friends, and your family. It makes your past self a liar. It takes their trust of you and treats it with contempt. To be cheated on is to have your very sense of self questioned. The person to whom you were naked in every sense and at whom you trusted and whom you loved has now exposed you to their shame. And that is only some of the impact of adultery. The ancient world knew this, and we see in the book of Proverbs, much is said there about the, the devastating social impact, the devastating impact on yourself that the path of adultery takes. But where does this now leave you? The law guides us, as we've seen, it guides us like a lamp, it shows us how to live, but it also is like a mirror turned on our own souls, it exposes us. The stats tell us that about 21% of men and 13% of women admit to have having had an adulterous affair at some stage. Of course, it all depends on how you define it. Sometimes Bill Clinton will pop up and say, it wasn't an affair, it wasn't sex. But really, Bill, it wasn't. <laughs> it was. But before 80% of the men and 90% of the women here get too smug, we need to hear how Jesus spoke on this command in the Sermon on the Mount. What did Jesus say? He said, you've heard that it said, it was said, you shall not commit adultery. He's quoting the Ten Commandments. Uh, but he turns around and he says, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
I think it's fair to say this applies for both sexes. Adultery is not simply a matter of the body, but it's a matter of the eyes and of the heart as well. He's not simply talking about the attractiveness of another person, but the way we contemplate having someone else sexually or use them as a fuel for our fantasies. We take by looking that which is not ours to take. It is a failure to love our neighbour when we do this. Now, of course, it's better not actually to commit adultery, just as it's better not actually to kill. But what Jesus does is open our hearts for us and show us why the genital definition of adultery just isn't enough. Because our keeping of God's law is so often a matter in our own minds of what's on the surface. It means that we can't find a technical loophole around this law just because we haven't gone the whole way. The focus of our sexual desire is to be our spouse if we have one. And Jesus' teaching shows us why pornography is such an acute poison, and particularly in a marriage. Now, porn is one of the earth's great evils. Uh, We're kind of just waking up to the devastation that pornography has wreaked on the lives of young people, by the way. You should talk to people who are in education about the devastating impact of the freely available pornography that swamps our community. It's evil on many levels, but there's no way for a married person to use it that is not adulterous, at least not according to Jesus. So, who can stand uncondemned by this command then? Is Is that it? Is that all Jesus has to say? Is he going to leave us stuck? in our guilt and shame. There's that famous story of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. The religious leaders have found her. It's often easier to blame the woman, don't know why the man she was with wasn't brought out, and they're going to stone her to death in accordance with their law. Make no mistake, there's no doubt as to her guilt. She's been caught in the act. Would Jesus join her, join in her execution? Doesn't the law condemn her? Well, Jesus drew quietly in the sand. There's a pause in the story. The tension mounts. And then he turns to the men and he says to them, Let he who is out without sin cast the first stone. Do you remember? In the end, the crowd of judgmental men simply melts away. Then he turned to the woman and he said, Where are they? Has no one condemned you? Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Notice that he doesn't say that the woman has not sinned, but no one can stand over her as guiltless. The hypocrisy of the men is exposed. And ours might be too. The only difference between us and the woman is her public humiliation. So can adultery be forgiven? Can the shame of my sexual sin be removed? For some of us, it seems particularly difficult to be rid of this stain. It adheres so closely to our sense of self and emerges from our ache to be loved and from the weakness of our flesh, from our loneliness and many other things too. Can we be forgiven? 
Jesus' answer is yes. He cleanses us of our sexual sins, including adultery. To understand this, we need to grasp the connection between the seventh command and the first. It's a great key to the Ten Commandments to look at that first command because it sort of governs all the rest. The command to have no other gods before the Lord. Since that is a form, is, is an image of marriage itself. And our marriages are to be an image of that singular and exclusive arrangement. But that commandment reminds us what kind of husband God is. The Lord himself is pictured throughout the Old Testament as a husband of extraordinary faithfulness, even though his wife, the people of Israel, are frequently unfaithful. They commit spiritual adultery with other gods. And the Lord experiences a deep and bitter grief over this adultery. If you want to follow that up, you look at the book of Hosea. paints this story quite graphically and painfully. But, but, the love of God never ceases. His faithfulness to his promise never fails. He is remorseless in his commitment to his covenant of marriage that he's made with his people. He is extraordinary in his determination to have his people as in, be in unity with them. And he promises that he will restore the marriage by making his partner pure once again to cleanse her of all her adulteries. And this faithful covenant love is decisively expressed in Jesus Christ. The New Testament paints him in a number of places as the bridegroom who lays down his life for his bride to cleanse his bride. In Ephesians chapter 5, a passage where Paul is, is writing about marriage itself, he says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Because of God's faithful love, Jesus laid down his life to cleanse us so that we might be one with him. Just as husband and wife become one flesh, so Jesus and his church become one. We are washed clean and free of any blemish. Not only is Jesus an image of what it is to be faithful in marriage, but he cleanses us of the sins we commit in our being married. And that's why in this remarkable passage, the remarkable passage from 1 Corinthians 6, uh, Paul addresses the Corinthians in their sexual brokenness. Now, we have to know about the Corinthians. Um, it was porn town. It was, it, was, you know, it was a pretty interesting old place. It was a real party town. And the Corinthians, they were there in church on a Sunday. They'd done it all. They'd been it all. Their list of debaucheries was long and spectacular. But because of the faithfulness of God in Christ, he says to them, that, you were all that, but that is what some of you were. Listen what he, how he addresses them now. He says, but you were washed. You were sanctified, made holy. You were justified, declared to be innocent in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, this may have been a very difficult sermon to hear for you. You may have felt 
condemned and ashamed. And that might, be, might have been something that happened a long time ago, by the way. I've been to enough deathbeds where people have told me of things that they've been carrying, burdens that they've been carrying for, for decades, in fact, and particularly over this, over this issue. But today I want to proclaim to you, by the blood of Jesus Christ, that whatever, whatever it is you've done, if you've come to Christ then you're forgiven, you're restored, you're washed, you're sanctified. In Christ, you are a new creation. You may have broken your promises. You may have hurt people you love. You may have deep regrets. But the mercies of God far outweigh them all. We sing sometimes a song here, His mercy is more. His mercy is far outweighs the weight of your sin. Far outweighs it. I can declare to you today, you are forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. You are made holy in his name. You need to hear the words of Jesus to the woman. What did he say to her? Neither do I condemn you. But we also need to hear him say, and go and sin no more. For our new status in Jesus Christ gives us all the more reason to obey his command. Knowing the faithfulness of God with us in our weakness, even when we didn't deserve it, gives us even more reason to flee from sexual immorality of all kinds, especially from adultery. It gives us every more every good reason to work hard at our marriage relationships, to work hard at our faithfulness in being single. Having been saved from the nightmares, how could we muck around in them anymore? How are we to do this? Particularly when we consider our own the weakness of our flesh. We need to present ourselves again and again before God's faithfulness in Christ so that we know exactly what is at stake. We need to remember once again and again God's faithfulness in Jesus Christ, his extraordinary example of commitment. If we're married, we need to work on building our relationships so that we, need, so that we develop between us trust and intimacy. And all of us need to watch ourselves in our weakness, whatever our status. That's so often the key to godliness. Not saying, I've got it, I'm going to be strong, but saying, I'm weak, I need your help, God. And knowing when we're going to be weak and vulnerable. For example, we're so often weak when we're lonely, tired and resentful. We're weak when we've had too much to drink. We're weak when we're travelling alone. We're weak when we think we won't be caught out or if there's some secret place we can go to which we think no one else will see. We're weak when we're just bored, just like David. You know, it seems to me David didn't go out, David, King David, didn't bother going out to battle with the other kings. He just sort of lounged around at home. <laughs> he, he wasn't busy enough at one level. And it was that that set off the terrible trigger, the terrible sequence of events that we read in 2 Samuel and we're weak when we believe untrue things. 
when we've got a sense of entitlement or resentment around our sex lives, when we believe we can't help falling in love, that's a lie, isn't it? That's a terrible lie, can't help falling in love. Ugh, just happens. Love will have its way. No, it doesn't. No, it won't. It's a lie. Or when we believe that adultery is victimless, that's certainly a lie. Or when we believe that God does not desire our good, what things can you do to watch yourself in these moments? For our obedience to this command is not simply faithfulness to our spouse, if we have one, but our faithfulness to the one who died for us. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.